Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome back to Cross Section, where we like to dive into the week's news stories and analyse, intersect, uh, have some fun, pull them apart, apply our faith to them in various different ways. And what a week it has been. Cressida Dick has resigned as the head of the Met Police. Turkey is apparently changing its name to Turkey. I'm sure I've probably got that wrong. To distinguish itself from the bird, they tell me. The Norwegian cross-country skier Jarl Magnus River got lost in the Winter Olympics. He forfeited a 40-second lead. Unbelievable. And we are talking to you right now in the middle of Storm Dudley and just before Storm Eunice, I believe. Um, we're in the lull in between because it's Thursday afternoon. It's about three in the afternoon. Just in case a massive story breaks, and you go, why didn't they talk about that? You're with me, Peter Linus, my good friends, Danny Webster and Damalola McKindy, and we are here to chat to you about a variety of stories. Uh, so the Winter Olympics is on. Danny, you seem to be our main Winter Olympics correspondent. Yeah. You're well, yes, well, breaking news this lunchtime, as this afternoon as we're recording, is that uh, Great Britain will win their first medal of these Olympic Games, having made it through to the men's curling final, which will take place in the early hours of Saturday morning. The the women's team will also compete in the semi-finals after squeaking through to the playoff places. So we will win a medal, either gold or silver in the men's curling, and we'll see what happens in the women's. But uh, it's been an exciting uh, couple of weeks, uh, not something I know much about sports. Has, I it, has it really, Danny? What's been exciting? Well, curling's quite exciting. There's quite a lot of suspense in curling. What is curling? It's like it's like bowls <laughs> on ice. If you think of long bowls, but they are on ice drink. It's basically what you've got. Come on. The most exciting bit to us has been everything but the sport, hasn't it? Like it's been yeah. the drugs, the That's doping, true. the this this is where it gets interesting. Which is the Russian sad. skater. Yes, well, it is sad the things that take most attention but yes sorry Danny as you were yes Camilla Valieva the Russian 15 year old skater who was uh, suspended for failing a drugs test in December uh, was then unsuspended and allowed to compete Um, so the the original inquiry into her doping is still ongoing but she was basically allowed to compete while that was still pending she didn't do particularly well on the second run of the women's figure skating program and finished up in fourth position but that did mean that the medals would be awarded in that competition that is what amused me most that you knew that before anybody else that she wasn't actually going to get a medal but this is kind of crazy territory again russia already competing under the russian olympic committee i think i'm right in saying because russia's banned as a country because of wholesale doping from two Olympics. And then they send a team under a special flag and then their key skater gets done for drugs. Not just one, she's got three different drugs in her system, but because she's 15, they don't think it's appropriate to ban her. And so we find ourselves in this kind of farcical situation, it seems to me, with the whole Olympic spirits being undermined because she was allowed to compete just in case she won. Well, I think she was more allowed to compete just in case she was innocent and in case she did then when it would have been unfair for her to have been barred from competing. But you're right, it raises all sorts of questions. As a minor, it also raises questions around the coaching and the team. And I find the whole Russian Olympic Committee thing a bit of a farce because, yes, they don't have the national anthem when they win medals, but they've still got Russia, they still exist as a team. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of sanction it really is. 
Well, look, we, we, uh, we aren't going to actually talk about the Ukraine story, but I think this does tie in in the sense of th this is Russia again just playing games of the world. They're undermining confidence left, right and centre. It feels like this on the drugs one here in the Olympics. They get to complete under a special flag and we still don't really know what's going on. And the whole sporting event is kind of tied up in this. But we do want to turn to another sports story, one that we do want to discuss, and that is our... <laughs> Our tennis star Novak Djokovic has given a, a fascinating interview, I think, to the BBC on this one, uh, to Amal Rajan, and talked about his stance on vaccination. So, Danny, for those who haven't followed that story, briefly, what are we looking well, at? Well, uh, Novak Djokovic uh, was deported from Australia days before the Australian Open was due to kick off because... Well, it was a bit complicated, but there was controversy over his vaccination status. He thought he was exempt um, and allowed to play because he had tested positive in December. The Australian Interior Minister overruled the decision and says it was a threat to public confidence in the vaccine. So just used his uh, right to kick anyone out of the country and did that. But Novak Djokovic has now confirmed to the BBC in a half an hour long interview that he has not taken the vaccine and that he, at this point in time he won't be taking the vaccine he says he doesn't rule out potentially taking it in the future but at the moment he says is that he considers very carefully the decisions of what goes into his body and has decided not to take this vaccine now that's despite the fact that six billion doses uh, of the vaccine have been given across the world to 60 percent of the population of this world. There have indeed been uh, some side effects, but he is continuing to press this case. It means he might not compete in tournaments this summer. He probably won't compete in the French Open. He probably will be able to compete in Wimbledon uh, because of slightly different rules there. So he says, I'm not anti-vax, but I'll sacrifice trophies rather than get the jab that I don't want to. What, what do we think about that, Tamalo? What's your view? The single most interesting that stuck out to me was when it was put to him, this could be you sacrificing being the greatest like player of all time. His sentence in response was, the principles of decision-making on my body are more important to me than any title or anything else. And as a statement of conscience and of courage, that's quite extraordinary. I think you have to at least give him that much. I'm going to take this stand. And even if it loses me a legacy, I'm going to stand by it. He also then says things along the lines of everybody has a right to do what works best for them. And that's when it gets more interesting. So how well can this planet spin if everybody does indeed have a right to do what works best for them? It has an intuitive resonance um, in the first instance, but actually so many parts of our society will just fall apart if that were taken to be true. So it does raise some vexing questions around conscience, around courage, um, but ultimately what does it look like for us to live together well? And I think that's what's interesting for us as Christians to think about. There are some Thing of his courage that I think is extraordinary and yet the way that we're meant to leverage our courage um, is towards the good of all and are those things being held together in tension as they ought to be in this instance it's an open question what do you think Dan? yeah so well I mean Sajid Javid said that he, he can only play in the tennis tournaments because other people have been vaccinated you know these tournaments can only happen he can only make his living because of that and yet he's also saying he's prepared to sacrifice that because of his own stance on this. I think I think we have to res uh, respect the strength of convictions that he holds, even if you don't necessarily agree with them. I think it is remarkable, actually, that someone is willing to forfeit the thing that 
is seemingly most important about their life, their, their tennis career, for something else that they obviously hold at a, at a higher level. So I think it's fascinating and you've got to have some sense of admiration. I think you've also got to ask questions of whether the rules, so not so much even the vaccine, whether he has the vaccine, but the rules requiring the vaccine are actually, are they fair rules? Is it fair for a country to restrict entry on someone who hasn't had a vaccine? Is that actually helping when people with the vaccine still transmit the virus? Or is it more about the messaging of the importance of the vaccine? Is that why they hold these these high and rigorous rules? Because they want to message how important it is for people to get the vaccine, rather than it actually being an effective way of stopping the spread of the virus. It clearly... Uh, restricts severe disease. It clearly is reducing deaths, but plenty of people with the vaccine are still uh, spreading COVID. And he's a divisive figure. I mean, I tweeted a little bit around uh, the Australia stuff uh, when he was not allowed in there and what were Australia doing? And the kickback was certainly interesting on social media. So that that was intriguing. Again, a lot from Christians. Because what interests me is this cross-section point we're driving at. Okay, so the freedom point that you were raising, Damalola, he's exercising his freedom over his body and what goes in and out of that. It's a conscious decision, something I'm broadly sympathetic to. But we are, he and others, we are living under the benefits of the freedom that the vaccines have provided. And so that raises like serious questions for all of us. You know, at the heart of the Christian story is somebody who gave up their freedom. You know, we follow Jesus, who gave up his freedom on behalf of the other. And I think that's the challenge for us as Christians. Now, Djokovic is not making that faith claim, but I think as we enter this story, we're saying, well, what is he doing? And how, what, what can we learn from him? Because he is a, a figure people follow. And he was asked that in the interview, are you being given a platform? What about your followers? Uh, you know, so does he have uh, extra responsibilities as I suppose a leader in the public square in this moment? But then the BBC chose to broadcast a half hour special with him, uh, giving him a platform, which has also come into criticism that the BBC would then allow him to articulate his views. Should the BBC have done that? Well, maybe, but on what grounds? He's a, he's a tennis player, but is he the person who the BBC want to be communicating with the public over whether or not people should take the vaccine? I guess that's one of the questions I have in that he was given a lot of airtime. In fairness, he didn't communicate to people whether or not they should take the vaccine. Some of that is the problem I, from my perspective of his position. It solely centers on himself, but he wasn't there to defend a, a certain position on the vaccine. I, I think he was definitely... Uh, promoting the idea that we should be wary about what goes into our body in relation to this particular vaccine and actually that's part of the thing there's multiple different vaccines it's not a single vaccine uh, but the message that came from it was i'm being careful about what goes into my body so that that all you but yeah i mean that that's an intro i mean he said that because he was uh, gluten intolerant and he changed his whole uh, diet but he's saying he's not trying to promote a cause and amal rajan who did the interview was saying I challenged him, I pushed him back, because the whole thing in uh, Australia was that he might uh, build a political movement, an anti-vax movement. He said, I never tried to do that. I've only ever said what I'm doing. Is he building a movement? Is he entitled to his own views? I think it's fair for him to at least say the story from his perspective. And I think at minimum, that's what he's done in this interview. And that's, from my perspective, fair enough. Well, there you have it. 
Damalola says it's fair enough. So that's uh, that's our, our definitive line here at Cross Section. Uh, love you to follow us. Uh, you can get this uh, podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Please, if you are enjoying it, uh, rate it and review it. If you've got some feedback, if you think there's something we're missing, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. Um, you can tell us what stories we should be talking about or, or tell us uh, what, what you think we should be doing better. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at EAUK News and you can find us on Instagram at the Evangelical Alliance. We'll often throw out a poll or say something about what we might be doing during the week. Please do get in touch. We love the interaction. That's what we want to see in this show. We find this really helpful. We love the news. We love the current affairs. We love trying to engage from that from a faith and a Christian perspective. Um, but we want to hear from you as to what's helpful and what's not as we do that and as we we spin through some of the stories of the week. And so we've looked at a couple of the key stories and now we're going to turn to the post office story. Some of you may know all about it. Some of you may know absolutely nothing. So, Danny, no, I'm introducing this story. You I'm are looking at me saying I'm supposed, I'm supposed to say something about this story. It's <laughs> as if we've thought about this. The post office story is has been described as, I think, the biggest tragedy, the biggest um, moment of injustice in the British legal system. Uh, the post office put in a new computer system, sub postmasters, which is basically your friendly person who was running the local post office in your area, had this system put upon them. And it turned out the system was pretty rubbish. And what happened was sub postmasters were being done for fraud when actually the computer system behind it was making errors and mistakes. Uh, Danny, you were telling me a, a total of 736 people were actually prosecuted for this. Many ended up in prison for this. This was people who'd done absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, people lost their marriages. People sadly took their lives around this. This was the biggest travesty of, of justice in the British system. There's a huge inquiry going on now to look at this. How could this possibly have happened? Uh, and I suppose it raises lots of questions about justice in this moment so Danny the post office scandal well it's a huge scandal over the 14 years these 700 plus people who were prosecuted some many people saw the the systems basically showing that losses were there when they shouldn't have been so people were basically topping up with their own money so people on top of this they had uh borne the cost of this in their own life so actually this was the problem people were having is they were paying into a system to try and keep it keep it up to hide the fact that there were discrepancies so and the heart of it is is the fact that the post office believed the machines over the people you have a ceo who was running the company at the time and it's worth pointing out she, she uh, was an anglican priest and also was uh, for a while a member of the church of england's ethical investment advisory group uh, which it's just interesting. It brings to mind the head of the co-op, who was also a Methodist minister, but then got convicted for, I think, uh, taking crystal meth and various other things. The post office were immune to the complaints that were coming from these submasters and sub-post sub postmasters. People were telling them there were problems. From the minute the system came in, people said there were problems, and they just didn't listen. I mean, it's absolutely a horrific story. Damalola, you I yeah. know, had some comments. It's deeply sad. I was listening to Jo Hamilton speak on this earlier today. So she's one of um, the sub postmasters who was caught up in this. And she spoke of being told um, when her case was going to court that there was a 75% chance of her being imprisoned on the back of this. And so she kissed her parents goodbye. She kissed her boys goodbye. And she prepared to face what could have been a custodial sentence. And to think of that real life impact um, 
on not just her life, but the lives of many, her whole village coming out to defend her. And all of those human testimonies were nothing in the face of a machine and a computer. And um, now in our world today, we are, um, I am recklessly reliant on my tech. A day without my phone is somewhat unthinkable and yet it's worth probing is is this a healthy relationship obviously this is a specific example all of tech doesn't quite function in this way and yet for hundreds of people to be disbelieved and for tech to be favored that shows a really faulty dynamic but it's not just the there is definitely something there on the over reliance on tech and i think you can speak to that and also peter and but what i'm also shook by is how the post office when it was brought to their attention when they actually verified that the system itself was broken rather than seek to make amends and they sought to hide the problem in the first place and i guess yeah human justice never works out perfectly in our world but part of the problem there and this goes back um to genesis 3 territory is when rather than seeking to bring the problem into the light and we bury it and try and make it go away on our own terms to save face or whatever and i think this story is a really good exemplar of the fact in this particular situation but in life in general burying the truth is never the way to get out of a bad situation yeah i mean i think the the court said look the post office's failures of investigation and disclosure were so egregious as to make the prosecution of any of these cases an affront to the conscience of the court the post office just weren't prepared to listen to absolutely anything the reliance on technology stood at the heart of this that's one of the things i would certainly want to raise the question around as we've moved to a more rational scientific age we sort of believe the computer and we disbelieve the human being and that's a as a real kind of tragedy of this moment uh, and the reality was that did have massive implications i listened to one of the ladies who'd spent time in prison it may have been the same lady joe hummel and going back into that prison and and talking about her experiences and i'm struck again by some of the other stories this week facebook's share prices down the whole meta uh, what's zuckerberg's latest thing i think it's um meta meta mates me taken from the royal navy ship shipmate self like this kind of idea the companies first the meta metas first then your meta mates whatever on earth that means it's just this freighting of everything onto technology if I start my rant about being away in a restaurant yeah, this week and seeing how many, kids, how many kids were on the tech the whole time, but we're favoring technology over human beings. And we do, I think that raises substantial questions for us in our search for truth and justice in this moment. We cannot believe the computers over and above what people are telling us. And that led to a real tragedy in this particular case. Hmm. But that justice theme kicks in again in the in the final story and a very significant story again that we want to turn to uh, and that's around Virginia Giffray. Have I no Giffray? I've I've said it wrong. Damn little how am I supposed to say that name? Well, I'm humbly submitting it's Giffray. If somebody else thinks otherwise, please do feel free to send an email into cross.section at eauk.org. But yes, Virginia Giffray and Prince Andrew. So I imagine most listeners are familiar with this story. But in general, um, the facts are that Virginia Giffray alleges that when she was 17, she was sexually assaulted by Prince Andrew at Jeffrey Epstein's home. And she's been making those allegations more publicly since 2015. And and 
the criminal process there failed in the States. And so a civil case was begun um, towards the end of last year. And now just before both um, Virginia and um, Prince Andrew were meant to take the stand and be deposed, um, a settlement has been reached. Um, And the fact that the settlement being reached something in the tune of 10 million pounds means that there will be no ultimate finding of fact in this case as to whether or not she was assaulted by Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew has strenuously denied these claims um, all along he gave a simply shocking interview to BBC Newsnight and the Matlis two years ago where amongst many things he alleged that he doesn't sweat and he failed to um, disassociate himself from Jeffrey Epstein the disgraced um, financier and paedophile um, before time because he's too honourable and so he's in general not come out looking well at all in this case but it does lead to the question is this settlement justice so what do you think is it or is it not Oh, damn, we're both hesitant. I mean, Emily Maitlis, as we referred to in that BBC News interview, subsequently said, look, right at the heart of this is this question, why is Prince Andrew telling her one thing, that he has no recollection of ever meeting this lady, and now paying out what we understand to be in the region of £10 million, perhaps more? So there's just a fundamental disconnect. To get to justice, you have to get to the truth, and we haven't seen the truth. So it's hard to see this as justice. But I want to say, as somebody who's... uh, practice in in law. I understand why settlements come about because the court is not always the best place to find the truth. That doesn't always happen that way. It's an extremely traumatic experience given uh, what uh, Virginia Giffray uh, says she's been through. To uh, restate that, to go through cross-examination that is incredibly traumatic. And she has a trafficking charity. That's where some of the money is going to. It also raises questions about who's paying this uh, you know, where's the money coming from? The Queen, who I have huge admiration for, is apparently behind at least some of this money. And it's just it's just a tragedy on so many levels, but particularly for Virginia Giuffray. The hope is that some of this money goes into her charity and actually helps victims to move forward in terms of this, because it's... I, I don't think justice has been done, but I'm not sure the courts are always the answer to that either. And it's it, it's normal in a lot of American civil cases between I've heard both 96 and 99 percent mentioned most civil cases are settled out of court. So this is normal. And this is where most people expected this to end up, that uh, they wouldn't let this all come out in an open courtroom. So, yes, the settlement is rumoured to be 10 million for her and 2 million for an anti-trafficking charity. For for a settlement that includes gagging clauses that supposedly will stop uh, either party discussing details of the case or details of the settlement, it's been very leaky. There's an awful lot of stuff in the press. Apparently, uh, today it was uh, rumoured that Prince Andrew will be stopped uh, from ever repeating his denial uh, that he had never met uh, Virginia Giffray, which would be interesting because, as you say, he has always made clear that he didn't meet her, that he was at Pizza Express in Woking, I think, uh, was the was the suggestion on the night in question. So while we don't know all of the truth, and we won't ever know all of it, it does feel that there, that this was a settlement that got it out of the way, which clearly for the royal family was something they wanted. uh, It's been said that she won't talk about this during uh, the Queen's uh, Platinum Jubilee celebrations, but it does also seem that Prince Andrew has been forced to at least slightly change his tune. Yeah, his story has definitely changed. So uh, there's a difference between what he said in that interview on BBC Newsnight and what he's saying now. 
And as you say, Danny, it's alleged that he can't restate those claims. It's accepted that she was the victim of abuse and unfair public attacks. That's part of the agreement, it appears to be. So there is at least some vindication in that agreement. And it's worth, I mean, having commented myself at the start on Djokovic and his display of courage and what that meant for the tension between it and taking care of collective and community interests. On the flip side, um, Virginia Dufresne's courage and determination and resilience in pursuing this claim has given greater visibility to victims. And yes, it's not, this isn't the best way for things to end. I definitely think a trial um, and having the facts fully done out and giving them proper vindication in that way is the preference. But showing that power can be held to account in this way is extraordinary and commendable and definitely closer to justice than had we not reached this point. So I think mad props to her um, for what she's done. And hopefully this gives victims a sense of dignity and reassurance in, in coming forward with their claims and seeking redress. Yeah, because you've got to remember in this story, you've got Jeffrey Epstein, one of the world's uh, sort of wealthiest financiers. Uh, you've got uh, Gillian Maxwell. Uh, you've got Prince Andrew. You've had Harvey Weinstein in previous stories. I mean, these are very uh, successful individuals who sometimes it was felt could not be brought down. And actually, the movement has now. It's been hard and long, and it's required incredible bravery and courage. But ultimately, we have begun to see potentially a shift here where uh, those uh, those absolutely horrific conduct has been exposed, brought into the light, and we have seen the system to some extent begin to do what it's doing. And I guess this is at the heart of the what we're trying to wrestle with in the podcast is these ideas around truth and justice, fundamental ideas that we're saying are incredibly important. How do we get to justice if we don't know what the truth is? How do we get to truth in a post-truth culture? How do we have those conversations when you have a country like Russia saying, is it invading, is it not? Are its athletes on drugs, are it not? Does it care about the system in any shape or form? But we need to persevere into that and, and I think absolutely lean into that as people of the truth and people of the light and bring that kind of transparency and exposure and sometimes acknowledge things that have been done wrong by those within our own community. As we've said, it's, as we looked at the post office story, you have uh, the former CEO of the post office was an Anglican priest. And, and that's something we have to look back on and say that that was really awful. But thankfully, Joe Hamilton's local vicar turned up with her at the post office inquiry and said, nobody believes the allegations against this sub postmaster. She at least was there standing with her in that moment. And it's lovely to see a local community vicar do just that at the right moment. You're all looking at me like I've said the profound thing to finish. So folks, thank you again for joining us across section. We are all <laughs> looking at yourself. the intersection. <laughs> Did somebody else have something they wanted to come in with? <laughs> no. And folks, we're, we're exploring each week what it looks like to live at the intersection uh, and to see what it looks like to live at the cross section. We are absolutely committed and love following Jesus in this moment. That doesn't mean we get it right. One week we'll probably look a little bit more at how we even look at the news and how we do those news stories. Please do get in touch. Let us know how you're reviewing the news, where you're getting your news from, and how you find navigating this cultural context that we find ourselves in. Our thanks again to Joe Evans, our producer, to Chris Ling Ringland for post-production. Some names I will eventually get right on this podcast, and to Tim Coyce, who offered constant tech support to help us. Thanks also to Damalola and to Danny, and for being with us. Be blessed. Peace. Cross-section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.